True worship is a life. What we just did a moment ago with that song, it, it was worship. Don't get me wrong. It was praise. And praise is, is right. It's good. Praise is not really an obligation. I mean, if you, if you have to praise someone because they make you, then, then you're not really praising them. But praise is an obligation in the sense that as Christians, we will have no option but to praise our God for how good he is. But if we limit then that idea of praising God for how good he is to nothing more than how we feel when we sing, then we really are going to be a poor, poor people. It's great that here at St. Paul, we are a singing church. You've always been this way. This isn't new. I have always been impressed with your singing. And the fact that we can fill up this carpeted room as loudly as we do is a testimony to your voices and your, your heart's commitment to shouting forth those ancient texts that are in our hymnal. But if that's all that church is to you, just a Sunday morning, just an obligation, just this thing you do once in a while, then you're going to be impoverished in your faith. I'm not saying you won't be saved. I'm just saying you're going to miss out on the benefits of salvation that are yours right now. Chief of which is to know that your life is a life of being in constant and total worship of God. And well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How is that? As we get into Romans chapter 12, which you can find on page 947 of your pew Bible, He's going to define this. And what I want to emphasize here is it's never going to be without Jesus. This is never about how, okay, you're saved by Jesus, but now you need to do this. That's not the idea. That is the thing that keeps Lutherans from being comfortable with these kinds of texts, though. We're, we're maybe concerned that somehow we'll give the impression that after you're saved, there's this ladder that you need to climb to be really saved. And yeah, that's, that's really a horrible spirituality. I would say it is, in fact, to not know what it means to worship God if you think you have to do something in order for that to be. Christianity is neither a philosophy that is a theory about life, nor it is, an, is it an ethic that is a, a moral system. It is a way of being. It is an existence in the broad and even naked sight of God. It is to know that all that you do is in the hand of the one who created you, who has died and risen again to redeem you, and who gives everlasting good words in order to fill you with the present faith. To stand through an age that's against you, knowing that there is an age that is for you entirely soon to be revealed. And worship is to live knowing that. All right. So from there, I'm going to do something that I've wanted to do, I'll, I'll even confess how it's a matter of jealousy. How's this? So you remember Dr. Adam Kuntz? He was our speaker when we did the set apart thing last October. Fantastic speaker. I do a podcast with him called Brief History of Power. You can check it out. Anyway, before the set apart event, 
know, he's getting ready to talk and, and I have to come up to the, the lectern where he's going to actually preach from. And I go up there and I see that his Bible's sitting open to what he's going to preach on. And I was, I was disappointed because it was his Greek Bible. And I felt, I felt a little weak. You know, I'm often, I'm, I'm working out of the English a lot. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's not that I don't look at the Greek. I do, but I'm, I'm afraid of not being good enough with it to just have it in front of me while you have the English, but we're going to, we're going to try it for two verses here. What that means, though, you're going to have to bear with me. It means as I read aloud verse 1 of chapter 12, it's not going to read just like it is in your Bible. you got the ESV or maybe the New King James. You're going to be hearing the, the Fisk International Translation here. Okay, um, but uh, And hopefully as I do this, what you're going to get is some flavor. The, the, the goal would be you're going to get a little flavor out of this. So here it is, verse 1. He says, I comfort you, therefore, brothers, through the compassions of God, to stand straight the body of you all, sacrifices living, holy, acceptable to God, of the straight worship in the mind of you all. All right, so... That might have seemed a bit different than what you saw there. Perhaps the most jumping out bit is the I comfort you as opposed to I exhort you. The word there is parakalo in the Greek, and that should sound familiar to you. If I say the word paraclete, can I actually ask for a hand of, uh, show of hands? How many of you have heard the word paraclete before? A good number of you, right? And it's one of those words where you're reading along in your Bible, or maybe you're at a church event, and they're reading out loud, and, and Jesus says, I will send to you another paraclete. And you're like eight. And you're like, what? What is another paraclete? They're like, oh, it means comforter. Well, why didn't they say that? Yeah. Well, it's because it's just the Greek word translated. And it's being tra- not translated. It's the Greek word not translated, like Alleluia is Hebrew, not translated, right? It's the Greek word not translated because if they just say comforter, it loses something. And that's true. It does mean comforter, but it also means a special kind of comfort. So para kaleo is from two words, para and kalo. Kalo means like, it sounds like in English, to call. Right? So I call you, but then para means like to be in my proximity, to be near to me. So to para kaleo is to bring you near to me. And then that means comfort. If I'm going to comfort you, I'm going to draw you near to me. Now here Paul is saying, I draw you near to me. Therefore, that is based on everything I just said, Romans 1 through 11. You know, uh, that Jesus has saved you by grace through faith. The promise of Abraham has promised us all along that you've been washed in his name into a new life. You're dead and raised in him. That the battle against your flesh is real. The good you would do, you do not do. The evil you would not do, that you find yourself doing. But there is no condemnation for you now in Christ. And so nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And so being elect of God, a remnant people, you are going to stand firm as branches grafted into the vine, which is Christ. Since you know that, I comfort you by asking you to worship Jesus. Paracalo. I come alongside you, brothers, worship Jesus by the mercies of God. That's been the whole book. And then it is to, to present your bodies, to stand with your bodies. Histomy is the root there. It's got the same front end, parahistomy. Okay, so para, to stand in proximity, right? Histomy means to set down, to place, to stand. And even that, that ST, hist, 
That, that is where we get our word stand from, etymologically, all the way through, okay? So I stand near you. I ask you to stand near me before Jesus with your bodies now, right? As he calls it living sacrifices. There's a little bit of a confusion there in my mind as Paul speaks. There's no such thing as a living sacrifice in the sacrificial system. A sacrifice is the lamb that you bring and then you kill it. Now it's a sacrifice. Why? Because you killed it. It was, it was going to be sacrificed, but until you kill it, it's not sacrificed. So how can you be a living sacrifice? Well, two ways here. First off, it's a paradox. It's a mystery. It's something new. This is a New Testament in the blood of Jesus, who was a dead but now is alive sacrifice. And so in this also, though, you know, Romans 6 told you this, you have been baptized into him and that has buried you with Christ. He, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. You're already dead, but you're alive. You're a living sacrifice. Now, knowing this again, what do you do with your body? How do you present your body to God knowing you've already been sacrificed? And then this is where the rest of the verse becomes so important, right? It mentions that you're holy and acceptable. That's by means of Christ's sacrifice. You're presenting yourself by means of Christ by the, so it's, it's uh, the logic cane latreon humon. Uh, in your ESV, it probably says this is your spiritual act of worship or something like that, which is fine. It's not, it's not wrong. It's just sort of incomplete. Spiritual. What's, what's that mean, spiritual? I think for most people, it means squishy. Hard to define. You know, I'm spiritual, not religious. That means whatever you say doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want. So spiritual is a very weak word, especially since the word here is nothing to do with spirit. Logic came. You can hear our word logic out of that word. Uh, it doesn't mean strictly logic, but it means to think straight. To think straight. Yeah? So this is your thinking straight. Latreo, it does mean worship. It literally means to fall on your face on the ground. Uh, this is how you pay obeisance to God, by thinking straight. He's going to talk in the next verse then about how your mind is of essence in your worship. This is not to say it's about how smart you are. This is not to say it's about how well you understand all things. This is to say that there is a posture to the Christian mind that the non-Christian mind does not have and cannot have. We've already kind of said this today a little bit over by the lectern. It is a posture of preferring mercy to vengeance. It doesn't mean you never feel the need to take vengeance. It means that you know that when you feel the need to take vengeance, it's not going to do any good. Because you have a mind that's been renewed to see differently. Yeah? You see how that has nothing to do with smarts. It's about how much you know. You can know all things and have not love. It's very possible. So, verse 2 then again, uh, it's this idea, your verse probably says, be not conformed, it's, and do not be schematicized. <laughs> Schematics, like a pattern, like a blueprint. Follow not the blueprint of this age, but metamorph, be transfigured, transform by the newness coming again of the mind of you into the testing of you, that is what is desired by God, the good, the right, and the complete. Let's start backwards there. The good, the right, and the complete. Again, if you think this is about morality, you're only like 15% right. 
There is a good and an evil. We're going to get to that. There is a moral. There is a standard. There is a virtue. But Christianity isn't about trying to have more of that virtue. It's about believing that virtue exists and then trusting it entirely. And where that virtue exists most is not in any do this, don't do that, you'd better, you'd better not. It's in a man nailed to a cross and saying it is complete. Same word. It is finished. It is perfected. Did Jesus, when he is made more perfect, as the author of the Hebrews says, made more complete by suffering, did he get better? No, he didn't get better. He fulfilled what needed to be done for us. And so that is, again, the thrust of good worship here is to be able to see what completion in Christ is, which will enable you to lift your hand to work for good without having to judge yourself in God's sight based upon that work. Because you already know you're judged based upon Jesus, okay? So good, acceptable, and complete. The will of God that you learn to see as your mind then is renewed to test. That renewing that is taking place there, it's not about like old versus new, like you got an old car and now you have a new car. It's more like how in the old car, you didn't have all the bells and whistles in the new car, there's bells and whistles. Yeah, uh, that's the idea that, that you have a difference that has come about now in your mind. Uh, and that difference is that you can test the world by the measure of the word of God. You can watch the world and you can see what God sees as opposed to being blinded by your own arrogance, your own limitations, your own mind and passions. Your mind is renewed and even calls it then transformed. That metamorpho word there uh, that is translated transformed, that's the transfiguration word, mount of transfiguration. When Jesus shines like light, that's what's happening to your mind by means of the word of God. And then my favorite, I already mentioned it earlier, the schematics of the age, right? It says uh, conform to the world. The word world there is aeon, aeon, right? This age, this time. Uh, and then the word conformed is schematizizo. Did I get that right? Schematatiste. There we go. Um, which again, you can hear the word schematic. The world has a pattern that is decay, destruction, and death. And that pattern, which is this age, is passing away, crucified in Jesus already. Which is why you then, crucified in Jesus already, need not be conformed to that pattern but by a mind that sees what Jesus is, what he's done, what he's coming again to do, you can see more clearly how to be now. Now, uh, again, I'm going to shift off a moment here to talk about the challenge this kind of text presents for us Lutherans. We know that the story is about Jesus. We know that church is about Jesus. But sometimes I think, and this may not be you, so if it's not you, don't worry about it. But for many, and many in our church body, that means that we never talk about you. We never talk about your story, which the fact is you have a story. You've been living it your entire life, and it's completely different from mine. When I think about my childhood bedroom and where I went to high school, and all, like we all did stuff like this, but it's completely different. The events, the, the actions, the times, the places, the highs, the lows, all completely different. You have a story, and Christianity doesn't come along and say your story doesn't matter. 
Just Jesus. Oh, no, 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 you. Just Jesus. It doesn't come along and say that. It comes along and says Jesus' story matters because he takes your story into his. That doesn't destroy your story. That redeems your story. It buys your story back from the wide path to destruction, and it sets it on the narrow road to salvation. So that, again, you do matter to Jesus. That's why he saved you. And you do matter to your neighbor. Because that's what God made you for. You do matter even to you. But the way to matter to you most and best is not by seeing you, but by seeing the other. That's true. And he's going to get into that here uh, as we go. I'm going to be shifting from my Greek to my English for verse 3. All right. For by the grace given to me, remember Paul's in this same boat. He didn't deserve anything. Murderer. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Notice he doesn't say not to think of himself. He doesn't say don't think about yourself. He says, when you think about yourself, let the word of God be the way you think. Then you will think rightly. Then you will think straight. Then you will be able to see. If you think about yourself in your own self, in your own mind, in your own words, you're going to become haughty. You're going to be high and lifted up. You're going, to, you're going to have some sort of hardness and callousness between you, God, and everybody else. And that's what he doesn't want. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. He's going to say in a moment to see others as more important than you. But that doesn't mean be a doormat. If you're a doormat, you can't serve anybody. You just get abused. If you're going to think of others as more highly than you, it means you're going to treat them in the way that's best for them. And that doesn't just mean, again, uh, letting everyone do what they want. Here's just an example, okay? So you take your car to a mechanic, and the mechanic says, I'm going to do this, and you pay him money to do this. And when he's done, you find out it wasn't done. You go, oh, well, I should be loving. I'll just go to a different mechanic. Or you know what happens is that someone else goes into that mechanic and guess what happens to them? They get their money stolen too. And then somebody else and then somebody, finally somebody does the right thing and sues the mechanic. And now he's loving his neighborhood by putting the thief out of business. So to, to, to love does not mean to do nothing. It does not mean to not think. It does not mean to never seek your rights, but it does mean to do so in, with, and under the word of God itself as your measurement. So you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but you think of yourself with right, with straight judgment. Yeah. Now, this really has to do with, in Paul's mind, how we deal with each other in church. Not as we worship, but as a people living at this time. All Christians, how do we treat each other? Verse 4, because as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. I skipped over the little bit at the end of verse 3, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So Paul recognizes that we're not all created, can I say equal? Huh? We're not all created the same. We all have an equal value in God's sight. There's no question about that, but we're all very different people even up to the measure of faith that we have received. Now, what's kind of important, though, 
if I'm remembering my Greek right, it's, there's, a, there's a the there in front of faith in the Greek. According to the measure of the faith that you have received. So think about that meaning. It's not about what you feel in your believing, but about the actual stuff you believe. Not all of us know as much of the Bible as all of us. Like you pay me to know more than you. Right? It's my job. Uh-huh. But some of you are really hungry. And so you're seeking. And there's times where every so often I'll say something and someone will come up and say, I think you got that one wrong, Pastor. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I probably did. Because, well, again, each of us have a different measure of how much of the faith we know. But this isn't about how, you know, I'm weak in faith, I'm strong in faith. This is about each of us are in different places in our growth pattern of knowing what we're supposed to know to discern as we have our minds renewed. And as such people, some knowing more, some knowing less, we're to bear with each other in both directions and every direction because we're like a body, right? And then he uses this example in verse four as the body has, um, as in one body, we have many members. Verse five, so we, many, are one body in Christ, individually members of each other. I want to talk about something that's hard to feel. It's hard to feel that the person you don't like at church is closer to you than a blood relative who is not a Christian. It's hard to feel that. It's not natural. And it's not, it's not natural. It's supernatural. It's redemptive. It's the next age. But that's what he's kind of getting at. He says, renew your mind in this way. See this, that the people that you commune with, even those you don't know, are closer to you by virtue of Jesus than anybody else in your life who's outside of Jesus. That's not a reason to not tell your friends and neighbors who don't know about Jesus, about Jesus. by all means, tell them. But recognize that they should be told because they're outside. They don't belong. And so you're closer again now to this unity you have here by virtue of the fellowship you have in Jesus. And thus, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them, he says. So because we know that we are distinct from each other and we're not all going to be the same people here, we're each supposed to be the best people that we can be to each other. Now, I don't think that this next list that comes in the rest of verses 6 through 8, I don't think this is meant to say, well, you have this and you have that and you have this. I think we all have all of these things. All of these things are part and parcel of being a Christian. But we do have them in different measure, right? So first one, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, ah, that's a worse treatment of the word faith there than it was before. It's the same idea. It's according to the analogy of the faith. Literally, it says that. Analog, that's the Greek word. According to the analogy of the faith. If you're going to say truth, it better be what the Bible says. So each one who knows what the Bible says, talk. That's what that means. Yeah? If service in our serving, uh, in, if, if dikonea, then in dikoneon. Uh, the word means to wait on tables, literally. But think about it as, I mean, what is, what is the most hospitable thing you can do for somebody? You have them to your table. You wait upon them. Yeah. So that then becomes in the New Testament a picture of how we treat each other. You don't have to literally ask everyone for dinner. 
but that the way that you're, you're acting at church, when you're not speaking the truth, when you're not prophesying according to the analogy of faith, what the Bible says, well, then you're treating each other as if you're the one serving dinner, as if this is your house and you're hosting. Now, that I mentioned you're a good singing congregation. One of the other great things about St. Paul is how welcoming you are. I really mean that. It's kind of bizarre, and don't let it go to your head. But, like, it's not normal in a lot of churches. There are places where the pastor's got to get up and be like, you guys should be more welcoming. I once had someone tell me, we're welcoming. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Whoa. <laughs> I don't feel welcome right now. Yeah. Uh, but you, you are. You see people who come in that are new, and you talk to them. That's all it takes, you know, is you just go talk to people. Um, but it's a marvelous thing. That's, that's service, right? And according to the measure of grace given you, you will then speak the truth and serve those who you see by welcoming them, right? Uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, and, and that does indeed mean to speak truth so that others will learn. But please don't hear that as just the pastor. If you're a father, you're supposed to teach. No option there. It's not maybe you're going to teach your kids. No, no, no. You're going to teach your kids. So if you're going to teach in, it doesn't say his, it's the again. It's another definite article. In the teaching. It's like the faith. It's a specific thing. Think of the creed. Think of the Ten Commandments. Think of the Catechism. That's the teaching. So each of us should, wherever we have the chance, wherever we're given to teach, teach the teaching. And then the one who exhorts, uh uh-oh, paraclete, Paracleto, it's sitting right there. The one who comes alongside to comfort in his coming alongside to comfort. So so we move from the, the speaking of the truth to the welcoming of others and caring for them in need to the knowing that there are things that will never pass away to the comfort that only the Holy Spirit can give as we stand beside each other in our sufferings. And and I would say that, I think, based on the way the Greek reads, the next three things that are said, we just did four, the next three that are said in the rest of verse eight are expressions of that comfort. So, So prophecy, serving, teaching, and then comfort. But comfort means this. Comfort means the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. None of that meaning that you only have to do one. Well, I do mercy, so I never give money to church. You're not getting it. You're not getting it. We all have this. And to be one who comforts others means that when you do give, wherever you give, you just give because it's good to give. You're glad. You recognize what what did Jesus say in our gospel reading today? That with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You know you can cast your bread upon the water because it will come back to you after many days. You know that Jesus is the one providing your daily bread. If you hoard it all up, it's going to turn to rot in the pot in the tent like the manna did in the wilderness. So again, to be of comfort is to know that when someone needs something, if you can meet that need, you do it. The one who leads with zeal. That's, the word means to run ahead. The one who runs ahead, the one who's over things, the one who sees to do it with all their heart. And again, fathers, lead your families. Do it. Step up. It's needed. We don't need less patriarchy. We need more patriarchy. Patriarchy just means the father is the ruler. That's all it means. Uh, it doesn't mean the women are less or of no value. It means they need to follow you. And they can't do that if you won't lead. So do it with zeal. And the one who acts with mercy, that is the one who's going to have pity, have pity uh, with kindness, right? With, with a smile on your face. 
If you see someone in need, don't go meet their need and then be bitter about it later. That's what it means to be comforting in the spirit together. And all of this summarizes again a life that is one that worships Jesus seeing these things as good. Doesn't mean that you do all these things perfectly. It means you know these things are good. If you could be a person the way you want to be a person, this is who you would be. That's Christianity. The hunger for righteousness. Doesn't mean you fulfill it. He fulfills it. You hunger for it. Yeah? Verses 9 through 13 is sort of like a little Ten Commandments of the New Testament thing here, where he's going to define what love is. Love, let it be genuine, he says, but notice how he defines it right away. He says, abhor what is evil. I think to think of love and hating evil in the same breath is about the least postmodern American thing I can do. Love, if it's anything, is not hatred, most people would say. And yet here Paul defines love as hatred. It's hatred for those things that destroy love. That's who God is. That's why he rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's why he sent Jonah into the belly of the fish because Jonah refused to preach what he told him to preach. And all the way through, any place God punishes or chastises his children, it's out of love for them that hates the evil that would destroy them if they don't turn from their way and repent. And so abhorring what is evil and uniting to what is good is what Christian morality is, if you can talk about such a thing as morality. I think you can. But it's the simple belief that there's a good. There's a good and there's a bad. And what we want is the good. And it's weird that anybody would not want that. But we know our own flesh doesn't. And so we fight it, right? We fight against the sin within. And so he says, um, I'm going to read this list a little differently here. Um, you can follow along and maybe see how, how it goes. But it, to the love of the brotherhood with devotion, he says. This is verse, uh, verse 10 and following. To the love of the brotherhood with devotion, to the honor being out in front, to the zeal without hesitation, to the spirit boiling over, to the Lord a slave, to the hope with comfort, in the tribulation steadfast, with prayer stuck to it. Meeting the, or meeting the needs of the holy people as a fellowship and after hospitality, chasing it with all that you are. That whole list, that 10 list there, again, I think defines love. And I'll, I'll slow down and kind of say what I just said again more slowly. Again, you're going you're gonna to know there's a brotherhood and that is Christianity. And our, our truth is that we're devoted to each other because we're Christians. Not because of how we look, not because of how we dress, not because of how we smell, but because we're in Jesus. We feast upon the body and blood. It's why taking the blood from that cup is so symbolically powerful. Now, if you take the little tiny cups, I'm not mad at you, but you're missing the power of the symbol. The Lord's Supper is a lot more than a symbol. So you're getting the power of the blood of Christ. But the symbol is that we share this cup. You go, but that's dirty and gross. Yes. You're admitting that you're dirty and gross. And you need to be cleaned. And you're going to join with those who clean you. Now, I can tell you, science here, follow the science they say these days. I can tell you that you're not going to catch a disease from alcohol and gold plating. Those things kill germs. The plastic cups, we don't use those. The glass cups, 
The glass doesn't kill the germs. The alcohol still will, which is good. Yeah? Um, where you're going to get a disease at church is when you shake my hand going out. I mean it. That's where you're going to get it. Yeah. So there's no need to be afraid of it. I'm not taking it away. But I want you to see the symbol at work in the power of that cup is recognizing that you are devoted to each other more than to the world. The world can be, literally will be damned. And you will go on. And so you will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord, all that good stuff. Showing each other honor out in front, right? If you're going to get competitive about something, be competitive about how you respect everybody else. That means you're not going to talk about it. Oh, I respect everybody else better than everybody else does. No, no, it's the opposite of that. You're just going to go ahead and seek to be one who always shows honor. You're going to be out in front of that. If you're going to be zealous, which is good, you shouldn't hesitate. Don't let the world stamp down your zealousness. When you know something's right, hasten to it. Yeah, don't, don't wait. Don't stall out on it. With regard to the spirit boiling over, I spent a lot of time last service on this. I, I don't want to spend as much time here, but the spirit boiling over is not about emotionally feeling the spirit. It's about knowing that the spirit is in your life and learning how to see where he is in your life. And the surest way to see he's in your life is when you're reading the Bible. When the scriptures are opened and on your mouth, the spirit is there boiling over you coming out of you. Praying the Psalms on a regular basis, that's the easiest way to get this in. I always want to throw in a pitch for the Proverbs. Read those Proverbs one a day, start at chapter 10, make a note, it'll change your life. But again, uh, I am going to tell the story. I wasn't going to, but I'm going to tell the story. I pray the Sons of Solomon Psalms. I try to do them every day. That means four different times in the day, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. And I'm going to pray a couple of Psalms. I got to memorize at this point because it just happened. When you do that, the same Psalms every day, eventually it's memorized. Nonetheless, even with it memorized, I guarantee you about 10 or 11 in the morning when I realize I could pray the mid-morning Psalms, I never, ever, ever want to stop and do it. Ever. And then you know what I do next is I shame myself over that. Oh, I'm such a bad person. Shouldn't I want to do this more? Well, yes, of course I should. But I don't. I don't want to do it more, but I know that doing it more is good and I don't have to want to do it to do it. And so I do it anyway. And then I go a little too fast and I don't pay attention as much as I should. And then I shame myself over that too. And then I finish it anyway. And then I'm done. And I say, thank you, Jesus, that you put your word in my life and I move on. I say, thank you, Jesus, that my heart is not far from you, even though it often is. But nonetheless, you've put your word on my lips and it awakens me every time. Huh? So the spirit boils over. I can say, like when it's done, oh, look, the spirit boiled over. But I didn't feel like having him boil over. It doesn't matter. He did. That's the good news. He's doing it. He's doing it. But not without you. When you read the scriptures out loud, you will be present reading the scriptures out loud. You're just going to be present with all of you, including your flesh, which is going to kick and scream the whole way. But the new life within you is going to be content from this. So you have this war. We talked about this in Romans 7. We talked about this other place, the war within you. Okay. Spirit boiling over. Think of it as every time you see the Bible in your life, you can just be like, oh, spirit boil over. Sweet. It's good. Uh, to the Lord enslaved you're a slave of Jesus now to the hope that's the resurrection, which is coming, being comforted by your knowledge of the resurrection, which is coming. And that's a more standard word for comfort there. In the tribulation, in the trials of life, in the struggles and 
and, and pains and the things that don't seem to be going right, steadfast, remaining, the word means, remaining. Huh? You're not surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Rather, you're aware that they're going to hate you because they hated Jesus. Huh? And so you remain in what you've been given. With the prayer, that word means sticky, and prayer sticky. I love it. I love the idea of not being able to get rid of prayer once it's on me. I can't get rid of the prayer. It's stuck on me now. Uh, That's how the Spirit is going to work within you again, interceding with groans that are too deep for words. That doesn't mean like, oh, that means when you're like, oh, God's actually hearing the right things that you're not saying because the Spirit's interceding between you and Him. Believe that prayer is stuck in you by means of the Holy Spirit. Looking to the needs of the holy ones, this is looking out for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that, in fellowship, in fellowship, in communion with each other, the word really is the word communion there. In regards to hospitality, chasing it. There's hospitality, it's getting away, better go get it, run after it. Chasing hospitality, chasing welcomingness. All right, verse 14, back to the regular English ESV. Bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. Now, I'm not sure this is about persecution. The word that's translated persecute there is the same word translated as seek in verse 13. Persecute and seek. So you're supposed to seek slash persecute hospitality. You're supposed to bless those who seek slash persecute you. The word again means to chase, to chase something. So bless those who chase you. It could be about persecution. It could just be about everybody. Whatever buddy, somebody runs into you, what are you supposed to do? Bless them. So it doesn't not include your enemies, but I, I'm not convinced it's just only about your enemies. That comes a little later. But you know, bless those who chase you, those who you run into. Bless people wherever you are. Let your mouth speak good things. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 15 and 16 is the same idea now. It's not about persecution. It's about who do you see and how are they? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That's more thinking language in the Greek there again. Do not think with high thoughts, but associate with those who are thinking low thoughts. So again, whoever you see, this is vocation as a Lutheran doctrine. Whoever you see in front of you, that's who you're there for. And whatever they're in, you can share it. If they're in poverty, share out of your abundance. If they're in wealth, believe it. They're going to share in their abundance with you. If they're weeping, feel their pain. If they're happy, be glad for them. I mean, this is not rocket science, right? Um, But isn't it a beautiful thought? Isn't it a great way to live? We're not going to sit there and try to make this happen and measure ourselves. Well, St. Paul, how do we do on joy this week? We're We're not going to do that. That's insane. But we don't want to lose how beautiful this image is either. That this is the life we pursue. That to worship Christ is to desire such things for us and ours. Yeah. So then, the end of verse 16, never be wise in your own sight. It's a quote from the Proverbs. Yeah. Never be wise in your own sight. How do you judge yourself? Back to where we started. How do you judge yourself? By the word of God. And the word of God present in your life is going to judge you rightly, is going to judge you in Christ, is going to judge you with grace, and that grace is going to awaken faith, and that faith is going to see that love is good. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Now here's where persecution might exist, right? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I already used the example of the thief mechanic, right? Who steals from you and you actually do the right thing by confronting the thief. You don't let the thief stay. So don't hear this bit about if possible, live at peace with everybody, mean let everybody do whatever they want, never talk about what's wrong, and be a doormat to the world. It means as you strive for what is good, remember that the height of good is to show mercy upon those who want it. Let's think back to Joseph and the reading from Joseph a little bit ago. When does Joseph forgive his brothers? What is he, when he says to them, you meant it for good, I promise to do the best for you. What state are the brothers in at that point? Do they have swords? Are they about to kill him? No, no, they're actually wanting peace. And so since they want peace, he gives peace. So again, this is not a text that says self-defense is not allowed. You're allowed to defend yourself and your family against violent home intrusion. State of Illinois, kind of. Kind of. But biblically, you are. So it's not saying never have violence in your life anywhere ever. It's saying so far as you can go, if you get to choose what goes on in this relationship, choose peace. If it's possible to choose peace, choose peace. Someone comes at you with a sword, block it. (laughs) But if they put their sword down, choose peace. Choose peace. Um, I'd love to spend more time on that, but we're, we're limited here today at this point. The point again, though, is to recognize, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, right? So if I have a sword, and I'm, I mean, let's talk about an example that's unlikely here, but if I have a sword, and I'm in a fight with someone else who has a sword, and I can put that person into submission in such a way that I don't have to kill them, and they go to prison because they were doing a wrong thing, and they were stopped, that that is not vengeance, That's just being a good neighbor. Vengeance is when he stabs me in the leg, I defeat him, he's on the ground, he's in handcuffs, and I just say, now you're going to get it, and I kill you. I take vengeance. That's what we're not supposed to do. And it's really important, especially right now, when most of the lies that are oppressing us in civilization right now are taking advantage of our niceness. They're taking advantage of how willing we are to live at peace. And so they use that against us to lie to us. It's really important that we don't believe now that we have to believe the lies. Just because they said them. Well, we're your authorities. You have to believe us. No, not when you lie. You don't have to believe the lie. But do we take it into our own hands to overthrow the authorities? Well, that's a different thing. That would be vengeance. Leave the vengeance to God, right? Leave the wrath to God. For it is written, Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you can see what a a narrow path this is for the Christian, right? And if you're really going to be worried about, did I do it good enough, you're going to beat yourself up. The point is not, did I do it good enough? The point is, what's your posture? Is your posture peace or is your posture hate? Well, my posture is peace. And sometimes to make peace, I have to do what is good, which means stand against the one who is evil. But in terms of punishment, in terms of wrath, in terms of making sure they get theirs, that's in God's hands. That's in God's hands. 
Right? That's a spiritual posture. It's a way of thinking. And they even say here, interestingly, uh, this is probably one of the toughest verses for a lot of people, I think. Uh, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's tough enough, but it's what's next that's hard. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, because by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's not because by so doing, you'll save him. No, no, no. Actually, uh, when, you, uh, when you face down an enemy and show them mercy rather than wrath as your posture, you are ensuring their damnation be worse if they are damned. Now, there will be those who are saved. It's not about, we don't make that judgment, right? But for the unbeliever, you actually, on judgment day, will see them getting repaid for their lack of belief, and their hatred of you will be part of that. That's not something to shy away from. It's right there in the text. Embrace it. Yeah? And it reminds me of a story from, uh, from 2 Kings. Um, I think it's 2 Kings. Uh, where there's a, a king who sends his troops to go and kill Elisha or bring him prisoner. And uh, Elisha has them all struck with blindness. And then he leads them. They don't even know who he is. They don't know that he's the one that they're after. But he, he leads them to a local city, which I think is Samaria, which is, the, king, is the, uh, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. And they are enemies of this army. So he basically leads the enemy army blind into the center of the city so that they're surrounded by Israel, who are their enemies. And the king of, of Israel says, so should we kill him? And Elisha says, no, 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 no. Feed him. Give him food. Their eyesight comes back. They kind of have a party. They all go home. They're at peace. Now, the point is the posture. The posture. It wasn't that Israel never had to fight someone in a war and actually fight. Sometimes that happens. A police officer has to pull the trigger sometimes. He can be a Christian and do that. Yeah. But in his personal life, is he a man of vengeance or is he a man of peace? And we as Christians are going to be people of peace. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's what Jesus has done for you. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, this is what it means to worship as a life. To have the faith which you've been given in the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus trail you like a holy ghost everywhere you go, boiling over with the fact that you're under grace and forever in a good place, even when surrounded by evil. In the name of Jesus, amen.